Each week on Emergency, you will hear discussions from EMTs, paramedics, physicians, respiratory therapists, nurses, and other healthcare professionals who are experienced providers in emergency medical care. These guests discuss their personal experiences in the world of emergency, as well as what it takes to provide care in some of the most stressful environments possible. There will also be honest conversations with people who have received emergency medical care, and they will bravely share their experiences as a patient who may have needed an emergency intervention. Expect funny, educational, and insightful conversations, which will illuminate the humanistic side of an often misrepresented profession. The Emergency Podcast is hosted by me, Samantha Barella, owner of Emerge Education Solutions and I'm also a currently licensed paramedic. I want to give you a heads up that um, our episode today may contain some profanity language as well as some uh, gross descriptions about human anatomy and injuries and illnesses. So listener discretion is advised. Let's jump into our episode. I want to have your attention for a quick second um, because I want to talk about something serious. We have a brotherhood in EMS and fire. That brotherhood is when one of us falls down, we all rally and pick each other up. Well, one of our own has fallen down. Marco Schomburg is a firefighter with the City of Santa Fe Fire Department who was on a wildland fire last fall. He was short of breath and started coughing up blood and was diagnosed with valley fever. That valley fever has paralyzed his diaphragm and now he needs a life-saving procedure in order for his diaphragm to work so he can breathe. This procedure is going to cost him $260,000, which his insurance nor workman's comp is currently covering. Marcos had to come up with $15,000 of his own in order for him to even get the surgery. Well, he's had the procedure and is on the mend. However, he is still coughing up blood and was recently admitted to the ICU. We really need to help Marcos out. And I'm not a person that often will ask for money from people, But I think this is a super important cause, especially for somebody going through COVID and the economic downturn that we've experienced socially. Marcos needs our help. Let's rally together and really help him out. If you're unable to donate, please feel free to share some positive words of encouragement and please share these posts as well as this episode so more people can find out and help Marcos. I want to welcome back Sahej Khalsa. Welcome back to the show. Thanks. I'm so glad that you're willing to uh, sit through a conversation with me for the second time. <laughs> you know, it's very it's very challenging, but I think I can make it work. <laughs> I'm so I I've gotten a lot of feedback on the first episode that we did, and mostly what people are asking is they're like, "Well, when's the second episode, the part two? Because I want to hear the New Mexico stats that he was talking about." So that was a good teaser you led him up to because people are wanting to hear the rest of what you have to share. You should just keep them waiting for a while. It'll keep them coming back. (laughs) We might lose them along the way. (laughs) Um, So before we get started and jumping in, I want to do a shout out to Oshawa, Canada. I know Oshawa is listening to the show and I want to say hello and welcome. So shout out to Oshawa. I don't know if I said it right, but that was my best attempt. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Anyone that lives in Oshawa. (laughs) <laughs> okay, let's jump in, Sahaj. Um, let's talk about, okay, 
So some listeners may have not heard the part one of this um, topic that we're talking about. So can you give us a little down and dirty review of what we talked about the first time in our first episode? Sure. Sure. Yeah. So what we talked about the first time is some research that has been done. Um, I worked with a gentleman from Australia named Bill Lord on some research, and there's some other folks who have done similar work. Uh, Jamie Cannell out of Oregon has done similar work. And basically what we looked at is um, whether or not there are disparities in specifically pain management for patients, minority patients who are cared for in the pre-hospital environment. And the reason we wanted to look at this is because there's a ton of evidence that shows those disparities in other realms of medicine. So we talked a little bit about, you know, the the disparities by race exist, um, unfortunately exist throughout medicine. So pretty much anywhere you go, whether it's in hospital, out of hospital, in a clinic, uh, you know, ICU, med surge, ER, you name it, we have unfortunately found significant disparities in care um, where minority, racial minority patients receive worse care than their Caucasian counterparts. And the these results hold true across um, education level, whether people are insured or not, um, income levels, socioeconomic status, it all holds true that if you're a minority patient, you're going to receive worse care. And obviously, this is something that's not okay. It's not acceptable. And so we, we need to address it. But up until pretty recently, there hadn't been much in the way of similar research looking specifically at um, uh, EMS, at pre-hospital medicine. So what we did is we used uh, student-entered data through a company called FISDAP, uh, paramedic students who were in their internship uh, or their clinicals, and looked at was there a disparity in whether or not patients received pain medicine by race specifically. We also looked a little bit at gender. And unfortunately, what we found is that those disparities um, carried over, it was unfortunate, but not surprising, Mm -hmm. but those disparities carried out of the facility and into the pre-hospital environment. What we specifically found is that if you were an African-American patient who is in pain, um, with a median pain score of seven out of 10, you were 40% less likely to receive pain medicine, Mm. uh, than a similarly situated white patient. Mm -hmm. Um, so it, the the gentleman out of Oregon, Jamie Cannell, he found similar, if I remember correctly, his was about 32%. He used a different data set that we did. He used Nemesis data, mm-hmm. so live EMS data from around the country. Um, and he found a similar problem where minority patients, specifically African-American patients, were not receiving uh, equal treatment from pre-hospital providers around the country. So, so this, oh, go ahead. I don't mean to interrupt you. Um, so, so this data, uh, do you think that if this, if you hadn't done your research and this other gentleman hadn't done his, do you think that this disparity would have even been found or is this really hitting home the whole point of why research is important? 
So probably to answer both questions, number one, I think it would have been found. There have been some other folks doing this type of work. But what was happening is, as I was having conversations with people in EMS about these issues, I would say things like, well, you know, um, minority, racial minority patients receive worse care um, in medicine. And the rebuttal was frequently, well, they, they would ask me what I was talking about, and I would share the data that exists pretty much across the spectrum of health healthcare. And the rebuttal frequently was, well, that's not EMS, right? The, because the, the research hadn't yet been done, th this was a few years ago where I was having a number of these conversations before we began this project. Mm -hmm. And because the research hadn't yet been done with um, EMS-specific data, it gave us as a profession an easy out. Mm. We could say, <clears throat> and unfortunately, we could say at the time, truthfully, well, this work wasn't done with EMS, so we could hold out hope that we were different. Okay. That somehow we didn't have the same challenges in our realm of medicine. Mm -hmm. And so what these projects did, what these you know, research projects showed is that actually we can't give ourselves that out. We can't let ourselves off the hook as a profession that easily because we have the same challenges as as the rest of medicine. And it it was again I'll say unfortunate that we found that, but not at all surprising when you look around at our profession and look at at you know, the society and, and who is in our profession. We're an overwhelmingly uh, Caucasian and overwhelmingly male profession. And the, uh -huh. the evidence shows that the more homogenous a profession is, uh, the more likely that people who don't sort of comport with that homogeneity are going to get worse care. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and it makes sense. And I don't, you know, I just want to say uh, that I don't think this is intentional. I don't think any provider out there is intentionally saying, oh, you're Hispanic or you're black, so I'm going to withhold fentanyl from you. Like nobody, and I would hope to God nobody is really doing that. And if you are, you're in the wrong profession. Um, but I don't think it's a conscious thing. And so I really think that the research that you're doing and that's been done really um, highlights this disparity. And then the next question is why? Why does this exist? And, you know, because as you're comparing it to maybe ICUs or PCUs or med surge or even ERs, right, in hospital care, and then you compare EMS, if we were different and if our numbers were different, then the question would be why? Why is pre-hospital better at treating pain for minorities than in hospital? But you're, but what you're saying is that is not the case. It's that we're all pretty consistent that we don't treat pain very well for minorities, whether you're pre-hospital or in hospital. So, But the question still remains of why. Yeah. So it, a couple of things. So number one, the, the question of why is the $64,000 question, as the <laughs> saying it. goes, right? 64000 And yeah, you know, back in the day when that was a game show, that was a lot of money. It's not so much <laughs> anymore, I guess. Um, but the, the, there's not an easy answer. And, and I want to back up and, and support what you're saying is we are not arguing that, there are, that these are individualized decisions where people are consciously 
deciding to withhold pain medicine or withhold appropriate care based on a patient's race or a patient's perceived race. Right. That's not the argument at all. Um, what we're talking about here is, um, you know, it's a systemic bias and it's a, it's a implicit bias that we, that's a, actually a part of the human condition. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if we talked about it last time, but there is some evidence that there is an evolutionary basis for us noticing difference um, between people. Yeah. We are genetically hardwired. There's a researcher out of Harvard who did this work. We're genetically hardwired to notice difference. And if you think about this from an evolutionary basis, it actually makes sense because on an evolutionary level, we it serves us to identify people who are in our group or individuals, let me rephrase that, who are in our group and individuals who are not. And when you look at primates, they do this constantly. They notice difference so they can tell if somebody, if an individual, another primate is in their group or is not in their group. And they have to do so to ensure that their genetic line continues because in many primate cultures there there will be sort of a, a new an outside individual will try to destroy any genetic line any children basically that aren't their own mm -hmm. and cause trouble so you know we have to destigmatize bias and destigmatize that we notice these things and then talk about them, acknowledge them, so that we stop acting on them, because mm -hmm. that's where it becomes problematic. You know, this notion that somebody is colorblind and doesn't know notice. I mean, obviously there are people who are legitimately colorblind, of course. Right. You're but saying we're like color about, racially blind. Exactly. Right. We're talking about this like defense against racism and bias by saying, I'm colorblind, I don't even notice the difference of of skin color, which is just factually inaccurate. And in, in fact, there's absolutely nothing wrong with noticing that, that difference, but there's something wrong with acting on it. Right. Or do you think that it would be wrong? And I don't want to get down a whole rabbit hole here on race, but do you think it would be wrong to treat people maybe even a little bit better because of their race? Do you think everybody well, should think... just be treated just equally the same you know, because I'm also thinking about like tying in culture to this. So so we notice there's a difference in somebody, um, their race is different, their color, or as you're saying, their color. Well, with that may come some cultural differences as well. So so I think it's important to notice color and to be respectful of those cultural differences, even those you may not be aware of, but still be respectful of those cultural differences. And then maybe even modify your behavior for the benefit of that person in that moment, maybe? Yeah. So I think this is where you're getting into a very um, complex conversation uh, about all of this. And this is why the cultural aspect of this is why we wrote a position paper and NEMSI, the National Association of EMS Educators, adopted a position paper on cultural humility in the pre-hospital environment. And so we used the term, I was one of the authors of that paper, and we used the term cultural humility mm -hmm. instead of cultural competence, because competence um, 
implies that there's an endpoint and that at some point you can be fully competent at culture. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that that's an achievable goal. But what so what we focused on instead is the recognizing that my culture or your culture or anybody's culture is not inherently superior to anybody else's and to recognize that I can't know everything about every culture that's out there and every individual. So instead, what we should do is treat people as a human being respectfully, appropriately, and provide them with the care that they need. And then also be willing to um, to own mistakes if we make them. Right. You can say if you if you unintentionally do something offensive to a patient because you didn't understand or know about a cultural taboo or something like that, then the the answer is the response is to say, I'm very sorry. Um, I apologize if I you know, did something wrong here and then move forward with from a place of respect and humility from that point forward. Right. And even and and I also want to say that I think that it's it's okay to be curious as well about one's culture. Like Absolutely. Like um I was thinking as you were talking the words that came to me were to be culturally empathetic um sure. toward people. Um and and you know, Sahaj, I think you do a really good job of um being an advocate for differences in people. Um Sahaj is a Sikh. And, you know, when I started working with you, I had no idea what that was. But I don't know if you remember our drive to Rui Doso for the EMS Educators Conference. And uh, we were in your, I'm not going to call it that, I'll just call it your van. <laughs> I'm not going to call it what we know it as, but um, we were in your van. Why, why won't you call it the swag wagon? <laughs> That's not what I was going to say, but we can call it that. <laughs> Um, and I was just really curious about, I didn't know anything about your religion and your beliefs. And I was just naturally curious and asked you a lot of questions about it. And at number one, educated myself so that I could be culturally empathetic, but also, um, because I was curious and I wanted to know more about you, um, as a person, as a human being, and you were very um, open and welcoming of my questions. You did not get offended at all. You were willing to share and even elaborate on things that I didn't know and even give me a little bit of history on Sikhism. So um, thank you for that. So I think you're a really great person to be doing this type of research, especially when it comes to um, disparities and um, discrimination. Sure. Thanks. Yeah, I, I I look different, right? I've got a turban and a beard, and that's not a common thing to see in EMS or in public safety. And my stance throughout my life has been, I would much prefer people ask me questions than make assumptions. Yeah. Right? And if those questions are coming from a place of genuine curiosity and wanting to know more, I'm always happy to have those conversations and answer those questions. Right. And and I think we should be. So I want to encourage both sides of this conversation of though, like everyone should be open to be willing to share for people who are naturally curious about them. Um, but as well as you should feel 
okay and comfortable to ask the questions if you are curious. So I kind of want to encourage both both sides of the conversation that we should try to be more open um, to sharing our disparities. And maybe this could really impact patient care overall. Um, you know, I as I'm thinking of where I've been challenged culturally in EMS has been with Native Americans because I don't know a lot about their culture um, and the symbolism behind their culture. I don't know a lot about it. And so I've been really afraid to offend somebody, but I have um, responded to many reservations in Pueblos um, and I have been treated differently for being a female, but it was part of their culture. And so care could have been impacted because of my, I guess, ignorance to their culture and really what they need. So I really want to highlight the differences that we're talking about as well as culture, because we are going to face it in EMS. Yeah. And I think to, to add to that a little bit, you know, it's, it's important that we recognize that culture is not monolithic, right? So we, we tend to talk about it, like we'll talk about Native American culture, to, to continue your example, mm-hmm. but you know, there, it's not a monolithic culture. There's significant differences between different communities of native Americans, even around New Mexico or around the country. And so it's incumbent on us as providers, if we're taking care of people from different cultures to recognize that, a, we don't know everything mm-hmm. and we can't know everything. And B, if we treat the individual we are providing care for with respect, and if we are sort of humble and open-minded about what we're doing, that we are, we are going to nine times out of 10 do the right thing. And then for that 10th that time, when we make a mistake of some sort, we have to be willing to, to acknowledge, apologize, learn and correct and then and then we we can share the knowledge that we picked up in that encounter uh and share the knowledge that we learned and then hopefully we can spread that information so that other providers don't find themselves in the same situation that that we did when we may have made a mistake uh through a lack of of uh information Yeah. I think this is a topic I feel like we could talk about forever because I'm also thinking of like uh, gender differences and gender identities and those types of things too. So we could take this conversation so many different routes, but I know that the listeners are really wanting to know the New Mexico statistics and data. So how about (laughs) we uh, deviate from our our, uh, racial disparities conversation and talk about the New Mexico data that you work really hard on. So share with us... um, so you were talking about pain management and minorities and the EMS does about 40% less job, <laughs> bad job <laughs> of giving pain <laughs> or treating pain to minority patients nationwide. Um, so what have you found in New Mexico? So, yeah, what we looked at in New Mexico. So let me let me just back up a minute and discuss a little bit about the demographics of New Mexico. Okay. So we wanted to do this in New Mexico for a couple of reasons. So number one, New Mexico is what is called a majority minority state. And what this means is that we have a majority of people who in the rest of the U.S. would be considered a minority. 
so a racial minority. So in New Mexico, we have about 47 or so percent Hispanic population. Mm-hmm. Um, we have about a 10 percent Native American population. Mm-hmm. And so some quick math, and then we add in our African American and Asian American and, and other quote unquote racial minority patients in New Mexico, and we quickly get to the point where the Caucasian individual, the, the white person, is the smaller percentage of all population. We're less than 50% of the population in New Mexico. And secondly, New Mexico is a state that was, um, you know, predominantly Native American until the, the Spanish came to this part of the, the world. Mm-hmm. And for about 400 or so years, it's been a culture that has been dominated by both Native American and, and Hispanic influences. Mm-hmm. Thirdly, um, the EMS provider population in New Mexico is significantly more diverse than that around the country and is also more aligned with the state population and therefore the population that all of us as EMS providers in New Mexico serve. So in um, New Mexico, again, we're about a 47% Hispanic state. We are 37.4% Hispanic providers in our EMS population. Mm -hmm. This compares to about 10% Hispanic in the U.S. Mm -hmm. We're only 53% white Hispanic providers in New Mexico compared to 81% in the U.S. Wow, that's huge. That is relatively large, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And we have about 6.5-6.6% Uh, Native American or Alaskan Native in our provider population in New Mexico. And I don't even actually have a number for what we, what that number is across the country. So New Mexico is unique in a number of ways that are relevant to this conversation. And so what we were curious is, given the unique nature of New Mexico, where we have sort of atypical demographic characteristics in our both our provider population and just our state population, um, do we see the same disparities in care mm-hmm. for minority patients that are found uh, around the country? And so we pulled data from our reporting system in New Mexico for EMS. And we looked at three different um, types of complaints. Two of them had objective measures of distress. We looked at respiratory distress and we looked at hypoglycemia. And obviously in both of those cases, there's a pretty clear indicator of distress, right? So if you're mm-hmm. respiratory distress, you're going to be tachycardic, you're going to be tachypnic, and you're most likely going to be hypoxic. Right. And pretty much everybody has the, the tools to measure those things. Right. And there's going to be literally blinking numbers staring at you, telling you this patient has a problem. Do do you need to fix it? Um, And then in hypoglycemia, again, blinking numbers, I suppose, on most glucometers, not blinking, but numbers that very clearly 
quantify patient distress, right? right? Hypoglycemia below 60 or 70, depending on what your protocol is, that person deserves treatment. Right. And then we looked at pain. So a patient complaining of uh, pain. And what we compared is when we looked at our different um, patient populations, do we see any differences? And what we found is that in the two objective, um, in the two conditions where there were objective measures of distress or of a problem, mm -hmm. we didn't find any differences in treatment. So if your patient was hypoxic or hypoglycemic, they got the appropriate treatment no matter what their, their race or their perceived race was. Mm -hmm. And when we got to pain, where we have found national problems with uh, treating minority patients with pain. Interestingly, in our Hispanic patient population, the gap was bridged. So there was no longer a gap when compared to the Anglo patient, that they were, um, they were equally as likely to receive pain medicine in New Mexico as the uh, Caucasian patient in New Mexico. Okay. And that that's good news. Did, did I explain that clearly? Yeah. Let me just um, try to paraphrase and then correct me if I'm wrong. It's, and so for the listeners, too, to try to paraphrase that. So you, you guys were curious in New Mexico because New Mexico is um, the majority of us are considered a minority, which are Hispanic. Majority of us um, are the minority. And the majority nationwide being Caucasian is actually in the minority in New Mexico. And so you guys were trying to compare um, treatment with minority providers, or I guess I want to use that word. Let's just say Hispanic providers, right? And um, if they give Hispanics and Caucasian people the same treatment. And so you wanted to measure it not just on pain. You wanted to measure as well as hypoxia and hypoglycemia, and pain. So you measured those three things and compared and contrasted if somebody got the right kind of care that they needed out of those three issues. Is so yeah, let me just clarify one thing. We sure. did not look at this at the level of the provider. Okay. Right? So we couldn't tell, was this a Hispanic or African American, Native American, Caucasian provider taking care of a, a racial minority patient. Okay. We just looked at it at the systemic level, right? Right. So whether or not the the um, race of the provider, we had no knowledge of that individual provider taking care of that individual patient, mm -hmm. but the disparities were covered for all patients, no matter who they were taken care of, across New Mexico, no matter who they were taken care of by across New Mexico, right? So we couldn't look at this Hispanic paramedic taking care of this Hispanic patient. We didn't look at that level of detail because obviously this had to be anonymized. And instead, we can just say that in New Mexico, uh -huh. a quote unquote majority minority state okay. with a larger than uh, national average percentage of minority providers, mm -hmm. Hispanic patients received 
pain management at equal levels to white patients. And the reason that's meaningful, it sounds a little bit strange to say it that way, but the reason that's meaningful is across the country, the white patient is what we call the, the referent, the, the reference that we use to say this is appropriate care because the white patient is going to receive, the evidence suggests very, very strongly, uh, better care than other patients, okay. than other racial minority patients. Right, does right. That, does that make sense? Yeah, so you're saying that the white patient is the standard because they're the ones receiving the appropriate care most of the time. So, Correct. So then treating the minority patients, they're being treated substandard if that's the bar we're setting the treatment to the white patient. Right. Correct. Okay. Um, I also want to ask too, because I think I might have not explained it, and maybe you can clarify a little bit more clearly. Um, so explain the significance behind the comparison of hypoxia, hypoglycemia, and pain. Like, what made you guys decide to use those as measurements? Was it because you have an, a real tool to measure hypoxia and hypoglycemia, but there's not a tool for pain, or what? What? Can you go and tell me, like, what what really inspired you to do it that way? Yeah, so that's exactly it, right? Is we don't have we have a pulse oximeter, mm -hmm. we have a glucometer, mm -hmm. but we don't have a painometer, right? <laughs> Invent so it and we, be rich. <laughs> yeah, if you could, you would be, <laughs> because so assessing hypoglycemia or hypoxia does not rely on the. Uh, subjective evaluation of the provider because there is objective measures mm -hmm. of distress that we can all see. Mm -hmm. uh, treating pain is different because if you tell me you're in pain, I as a provider have to decide, do I believe her or not? Mm -hmm. And do I believe that she, her pain is enough that she should get some of my fentanyl or my morphine, right? And that's obviously a pretty crude way to, to talk about it. But fundamentally, I as a provider have to make a decision. Absolutely. And I make that decision based on all sorts of different things, right? And again, I'm going to go back to what we said at the beginning is I am not arguing that there that I as a provider or another provider out there is going to say, well, Sam shouldn't get any pain meds because she's a woman or she's Hispanic or whatever, mm -hmm. but that the, the bias that exists in society, we're not immune to that as providers, right? We're not immune to the, the bias that, that is rampant throughout our society. Mm -hmm. And so when I make a decision of whether you or any other patient gets pain medicine, the biases that exist in society are acting upon me as I make that decision. Right. And so in the, the analogy I use is that we as providers and as really as humans living in our society, we're fish who are swimming in a sea of bias. And in New Mexico, because of all the stuff that we've talked about, our sea is a little bit less salty if salt is bias. Okay. And our, our sea is a little bit less salty because of the, you know, 400 years of Hispanic dominated culture in, in this state. 
of the the fact that I am way more likely in New Mexico, in fact, roughly four times more likely to work with a Hispanic provider in New Mexico than I am elsewhere. Mm -hmm. I am significantly more likely to have Hispanic neighbors who I interact with regularly. And so we don't know what causes this difference, but we know that our, our research showed that it existed. Right, right. So back to the New Mexico stats. Okay, so you guys measured... Tell us like the results from the three different issues or the three different um, presentations, hypoxia, hypoglycemia, and then pain. What did you guys find as far as like how many people were treated for which complaint or illness? So one of the challenges of this is we had way more people complaining of pain. So for the three conditions, hypoglycemia, we had 905 people. Uh, respiratory distress, we had 2,722. And in pain, we had 52,220. Oh, wowee. Okay. <laughs> so a lot more people complaining of pain than the other two things. And what we found is that if you were in pain in New Mexico and you were Native American or Alaskan Native, or if you were African-American, you were less likely, statistically less likely to receive pain medicine than if you were white or if you were Hispanic. Mm -hmm. Again, disparities by race. Right. When we looked at respiratory or hypoglycemia, smaller numbers, but we didn't really find those differences. Objective measures of distress led to effectively equal treatment across the board. Okay. Um, so what do you think that this is going to do for like, okay, let me ask the question this way. Um, what do you think this data, how do you hope, what's your hope for it to be used and how do you hope that it can change EMS and the way we treat people for pain, whether it's at the national level or at the state level? Like how, how do you want this information to be? applied, I guess. So I think the, the most important thing in my mind is that we have these type of conversations, mm -hmm. right? So that we as providers and as a profession recognize that we're not immune from the, the forces that act on us in society, right? We're not immune from um, the systemic bias that exists throughout our society. Right. And so let's talk about, let's have honest conversations about how that impacts us. Let's have honest conversations about, you know, do we, do we actually, as a profession, at a, as a, at a profession level, do we treat people differently? Well, the, the data seems to suggest we do. Mm -hmm. In fact, I'll go a step further. The, the data, I haven't seen data that says that we don't. <laughs> Okay. Right? We, yeah. we do treat people differently. We're not immune. So we need to have conversations that go beyond the reflexive, no way, I'm not a racist. Oh. Because I, I believe that people don't get into this profession with, with very few exceptions because they want to mistreat people or because they want to treat people unequally. Right. You get into this profession because you want to help people. Mm -hmm. You want to do right by people. You want to make their, their worst day a little bit better by, by showing up and taking care of them. Right. So 
if we can accept that as our baseline, then we have to have a conversation to understand that, A, we're not doing that, right? We're treating people differently based on race and uh, other factors as well, gender and age, but that's not exactly what we're discussing right now. Right. Um, and so if, if we accept that, and again, I, I would be happy to see data that shows that our research is an outlier and, you know, is wrong, but I haven't seen it yet. Um, and if it's out there, I'd be thrilled for somebody to show it to me because then we don't have to have this conversation because these aren't easy conversations to have. Right. But as educators, you know, I'm primarily an EMS educator right now. Um, we need to have these conversations with our students. We mm -hmm. need to be having these discussions as services. We need to be assessing, uh, at the service level, do we have these disparities in our care? So instead of doing QI simply and looking at, did paramedic A do the right thing on call Y? Mm -hmm. Instead, we should look at a, a department level. Um, are we treating our minority patients in our care differently than we are other people? And if so, let's let's start talking about it and let's make sure we're addressing it in in the the um research that bill lord and i did we found that uh, employees change what is measured so if we start measuring something at the employee level right well, meaning I, they I know I about tell, it right so say again oh like meaning they know about it they know you're measuring this procedure or this med like you're actually paying attention to these things yep so if the employer is paying attention to things if they're paying attention on a systemic level and i want to be very clear about that i'm not looking to get paramedic a in trouble right instead at a systemic level is fire department you know rolling acres fire department and if there's actually a rolling acres fire department i apologize because i just made up that name but is Rolling Acres Fire Department treating all the patients that they see and that they take care of equally? Right. If they are, wonderful. Keep doing what you're doing. But if you find in your research that you are not, then that's where training, that's where conversations, that's where um, those type of things come into play. And we say, all right, everybody, we found that we're treating fill in the blank group of patients a little bit differently than we are everybody else. And that simple awareness that A, it's being measured, and B, that we've got a disparity is going to fix the majority of the problem right there. Mm -hmm. but, but then we have to start looking, as educators, we've got to look at, in medical school, they call it the hidden curriculum. So, this is the stuff that we don't really talk about. But for EMS, let's use an example of, you know, how many times do we run a scenario where your patient is in a nursing home and the nursing home staff isn't there to give you turnover of care report mm -hmm. or they tell you, I just got here. I don't know anything. And in the scenario, they throw a stack of paperwork at you. Mm -hmm. So we do that because it's stuff that potentially we've experienced. But what we should probably think about is what message does that send about, for example, nursing home staff? We send a message that they're 
lazy, incompetent, don't know what's going on with their patients. And we do that type of thing with, with racial issues as well. So we oftentimes will see race brought into the picture in a scenario only when it's relevant to some disease that overwhelmingly impacts a certain racial group. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, I've talked to students about this and they know almost universally that if, if we say your patient is a 56-year-old male, African-American male complaining of abdominal pain, the students tell us that immediately sickle cell disease pops up on their, their differential because if we don't say in every other time, your patient's a 56-year-old white male, your patient's a 62-year-old Hispanic uh, male, your patient's a, you know, if we don't make that racial piece, mm-hmm. the race of the patient, a standard part of our briefing to the, to the students, then we highlight it when it becomes uh, a part of it. And we only drag it in when it's relevant. So we're sending specific messages when we do those things. And we just should be very conscious and aware of, of what we're doing as we're, we're teaching and as we're treating um, our patients. Yeah. And I think that the stuff we're talking about, I want to back up to where you said that it really, your hope is that it generates conversation, these types of conversations to even talk about it. Um, and then looking at it like within a department and what your department's doing, I actually want to even take it a step further and encourage people to look within yourselves. I think that we, I would like to think that providers that are in EMS are constantly, and a lot of people I know, constantly look for ways to improve themselves. How can they be a better provider they want follow-up from the hospital of like, what did I miss or did I do the right care and what was the outcome of that patient? I think a lot of us oftentimes want that information and, and really, truly the root of those questions is because you want to be better. You want to be a better provider um, for not only your patients, but the community that you're serving too. So um, I want to take it a step further and encourage people to look within themselves. You can actually stimulate a conversation about this, but I think it starts looking at yourself. And it, and it's not looking at yourself as you're listening to the episode. It's not just that. It's looking at yourself when you're on the, that call and, and you have that patient and you're thinking fentanyl or morphine or ketamine or whatever it is, you're thinking that's the appropriate treatment. And then if you decide, no, like I'm not going to give it, then ask yourself why. Like, is is there a real reason why you aren't giving it? Or is it that bias that maybe you don't even know that you carry, which like you said, we all do. So I think it's just taking a look at yourself and how asking yourself some hard questions on how you can be better. And if this really is something that's impacting your treatment as a provider. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that has to be a part of it as well. Right. Right. And I'd like to be, go ahead. This this has to be internally as well as externally driven right and if we really want the change to stick it has to be intrinsic providers have to acknowledge internally to themselves that this matters and that we have work to do right and 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 i think most most providers are more than willing to do that because as we started saying people get in into this profession to help people yeah, totally. And I and I want just want to encourage people to, you know, I know especially in our social climate right now across the nation, this topic of race is really a, a hot, sensitive topic. And it might be a little bit challenging to be like, 
Well, yeah, I could have given that one patient who happened to be Native American. I could have given them some fentanyl or something like that. Like, no one's going to come out and admit that they screwed up in that way, especially right now, right? But I, I think that these are these are things that you can highlight within yourself to maybe make a change and improve yourself. Like I said, I think that we are a profession. I'd like to think we're a, a profession of people who are constantly looking to better themselves and better the the care that they provide. So one of that is kind of having to look at yourself a little bit critically and looking at what you could do differently and how you can be better. Yep, absolutely. So we're getting to the end of our show. Is there anything else that you want to use this information for that you you have hope? So like, let's say you had magic fairy dust (laughs) and you could sprinkle it and make any changes you wanted to with this information. What, what is it you would like to see this information do long-term any other than give another than stimulate a conversation. And if that's all it is, that's perfect. Like then it's serving a, a positive objective purpose, but is there anything else you would add to that? Yeah. So ultimately what I would love to see is that a patient who calls 911 or goes to the hospital or anywhere it comes in contact with the healthcare system, gets the care that they need, no matter who they are, where they came from, how much money they have, what race, gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation, anything that they are, um, that they're going to get the care that they need. They're going to get the aspirin for the MI. They're going to get the CT scan for the stroke. They're going to get the kidney transplant that they need, mm-hmm. irrespective of who they are. Sure. Right. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, that's that's our goal. That's right. my goal anyway. And and we should be doing like we would like to say we're doing that as a profession, but the data is showing us that we're not. So I think we can all take a look at our departments and ourselves and see how we can use this information to improve the way we treat people, which is what we do, which is our yeah. job, <laughs> is our profession. That's what we do is Un- treat people. Unfortunately, if we said to ourselves that we're already doing that, we would be lying to ourselves right. according to the data. Yeah. And I think we probably shouldn't do that as medical professionals. We should instead follow what the science tells us. Well, and not only that, but just even in in general, like if you had, I mean, if I could just say like related to something that's common, like strokes, right? You don't call stroke alert on your patient. And if those percentages of patients that were experiencing a stroke or stroke-like symptoms didn't get the CT they needed, we as healthcare would be up in arms about it, right? So mm-hmm. I think that we should have a similar approach to this because nobody likes to be in pain. Not only that, but pain is going to actually make physiological changes within the body that prohibit actual healing. So it, pain is a big deal. We should be addressing it. Totally. Cool. So I want to ask you three questions. Um, I asked you these three questions uh, on part one of this topic. Uh, so you cannot repeat them because I wrote them. Your, I wrote your answers down from previous. So you can't repeat them. You got to Just kidding. I didn't. But I think I would remember. <laughs> so you got to say something different. Okay. <laughs> Challenge accepted. <laughs> okay. Ready for question one. Go for it. I wish I had a drum, drum roll when I say that. It would make it so much better. Um, if you could host a public safety announcement and bring awareness to something, what would it be? You mean aside from this? Yes. Like, it could be like, wear a helmet riding a bicycle, or how about well, think, don't drive in the fast lane if you're going slower than the speed limit on the highway. Maybe you go to the right lane, or something like that. 
<laughs> um, I, I think what I would say at this point, I think last time I said, wear a damn mask. Mm-hmm. So th- this time I'll say, cause I can't say the same thing as last time. Wash your damn hands. <laughs> okay. Uh, stay six feet apart. Can I add to your PSA? Uh, st- stay in your damn house. How about that? <laughs> yeah. Don't go anywhere <laughs> or have parties. <laughs> okay. Question two, what is one thing you would want younger people to know about this profession and like younger people who like high school age or or maybe people who just graduated who are trying to figure out what they want to do next? Uh, It's incredibly rewarding. We, we get to take care of people. Um, and we see the literally the spectrum of life from birth to death and, Mm -hmm. and we can make a difference all throughout that spectrum. Yeah. And even having people like I'm thinking of people I've taken care of who've come to the station after like days after maybe the next time I was on duty, they came to the station and um, brought us cupcakes or just a thank you card or even just came by to say thanks. Like that is in and of itself super rewarding and, and pretty much worth it. Yeah, very much so. I have a plaque on my desk from the family of a kid who was born at about 24 weeks and we resuscitated in the field and he's turning 12 or 13 this year. Wow. Yeah. Like that, nothing can replace that, right? <laughs> like that's super yeah, special. That's, that's pretty cool. Totally cool. Way, way rewarding. <laughs> okay. Last question. In one word, describe your experience in EMS. Rewarding. <laughs> I was going to say, you can't say rewarding, but I guess you can. Too late. <laughs> it's my show. I'm the boss. <laughs> the, tab- the tables have turned. <laughs> Interesting. That's the word you'd say? Uh, well, since I, I was banned from saying rewarding. <laughs> yeah. Inter- interesting. Challenging. Um. Yeah, I I could use a lot of words, but I was only allowed to use one. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you for all of the info that you provided to us and for this conversation. I think that we are going to plant some seeds and and at least make some change. Even if it is little, we're still making some change for people. So thank you for your time and for... um, describing the data in New Mexico because I think a lot of people were really wanting to listen to that. So I appreciate you, Sahaj, um, and all you do for us in our EMS community. Thank you so much. And we will see you on the next show. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you. So for all of you that are listening, thank you for listening. We will talk to you again very soon. And until then, stay safe. 